The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Kelly remained concerned that something more serious could develop in the future with the type of behavior exhibited by this somber 15-year-old boy. Left unchecked, Kelly knew these disturbing tendencies could escalate. A youthful fantasy that hadn't harmed anyone might one day become a frightful reality. From Trace Evidence by Bruce Henderson Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club, Episode 27, The Elusive Killer. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Boogies. I'm your host, Jill. For those of you just turning in, I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share the stories with you. Every month, I will discuss a book that I pulled off my murder shelf, and I won't give you a boring linear timeline. In the first two episodes, I like to follow in the steps of the author to give you the story from his or her point of view. In the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I will delve into the path not taken, those threads not pulled. I'll add analysis, related materials, and updates into the case that completely fascinates and take us into a deeper dive. These episodes tend to have a surprising quality to them. So a little housekeeping. You may have picked up on the cues already. To my sadness, Tara finds that life is proving more complicated than she anticipated, and her leave of absence is going to continue without an end date. So I will be going solo into the future. We really believe that the obstacles would be overcome, but it is just not happening. She does not have COVID. She doesn't have any disease. We did not break up. No one is mad at the other one. It's just really a matter of time, and when you need 30 hours in a day, here we are. So I am really sad. Um, This was really difficult to decide. I love her to pieces, and I hope she can guest host because I miss her greatly. But since I am the whole production team now, with no other writers or researchers or assistants or editors, it's all me, I will be sorting out my process. What I am going to do is take a little vacation for myself right after this series, And so when I begin anew, I will be fresh and ready to go for all my murder bookies. So we fall into the fall the right way. I think that'll work. Now, we do remain a proper book club. So I'm breaking out the food for today. A mushroom and herb white pizza. I really have no free time now. So I've got a large pre-cooked crust. So you sauteed mushrooms and I did use a variety of them. Saute them in olive oil with the herbs, thyme, oregano, salt, and a little dash of lemon juice. Then you brush a bit of the olive oil on the crust, add your mozzarella cheese with the mushrooms, and then goat cheese. Oh God, I love goat cheese. Uh, Some chopped chives and a sprig of thyme 
and then you bake it. It is that easy. I think it bakes five to seven minutes. And the perfect pairing is one of my favorite ones from NakedWines.com, F. Stefan Millier Obsession California Red. It is a blend of Merlot, Zinfandel, and a Petite Syrah, making it a bit unusual in my opinion. The flavor, very buoyant. Fruit flavors, there's blueberry, plum, so it keeps it light. And it goes well for a variety of occasions, not just book club. But I really enjoy this wine. And if you're partial to reds, you really will too. It's definitely not acidic, very light on the palate. It runs about $15.95 a bottle, but less if you go through a Naked Wine subscription, which I do highly recommend. It's really an unbelievable price for this quality of wine. And the pizza is from A Couple Cooks by Sonia Overheiser. The information on the Millier is on my blog at www.murdershopbookclub.com. So, bon appetit, murder bookies. Now, I am really excited about this book, Trace Evidence by Bruce Henderson. If you haven't read along, that is okay because we are going to walk hand in hand with the detectives in this case. It is one of the best true crime books in the genre, if you ask my opinion. A little bit about Mr. Henderson. He served on an aircraft carrier, the USS Ranger, during Vietnam, so I sincerely thank him for his service. And he wrote a book about a Navy pilot he served with, Dieter Dingler, and Hero Found, The Greatest POW Escape in the Vietnam War, which is going to be on my staycation list, absolutely. And his latest book is Sons and Soldiers, The Untold Story of Jews Who Escaped the Nazis and Returned with the U.S. Army to Fight Hitler. Now, being a retired Holocaust and genocide teacher, I cannot wait to get my hands on this one either. So, author of another 18 nonfiction books, Henderson is a former newspaper reporter, magazine editor, private investigator, field producer for television news, has taught reporting and writing classes at Stanford University and at the U.S. School of Journalism. Bruce Henderson is a member of the Authors Guild and lives outside San Francisco, California. He amazes me. And if you haven't heard, I kind of love this book. And you can find all of his works at www.brucehendersonbooks.com. Mr. Henderson's story opens in 1954, Vista, California, with a 36-year-old woman, Esther Underwood, noticing that some clothes had grown off her clothesline. All right. So she's looking around, and she discovers they hadn't blown off at all. They were, in fact, missing. She double-checks, and she confirms that an orchard dress, two bathing suits, and some nylon stockings are gone. Disconcerted, she goes into her modest home at 44 Castleman Street and calls the police. Officers Don Morrison and Doug Gardner arrive, taking Esther's report, and resume patrol. When a nine-year-old girl flags them down. So, all right, it's becoming a really interesting late afternoon. Little Judy Ferrec reported that she was playing in the park when she saw a teenage boy on a green bike riding with a box and a shovel. And he'd gone over to the fence, dug a hole, and put the box in, covering it with dirt and leaves. Judy said he's 14 or 15 years old, short brown hair, wearing a white t-shirt and jeans. Curious, the officers go over to where she pointed. They discover a box, and inside they find an orchard dress, two bathing suits. Snap! 
The officers then spy a couple of workmen over at the American Legion Hall, which is next to the park, and they go over and they ask them if they'd seen a boy on a green bike who's now a suspect. Workman Jack Kern says, yeah, but he only knew the family name, not the boy himself. Heading over to the family's home, which is like a two-minute drive away, the dad listens to the officers and says that the suspect sounds like his son's friend, and they live over at 545 Castleman Street. So it's if the boy left breadcrumbs for the police to follow that afternoon, leading right back to Castleman Street itself. Arriving at the boy's home, when confronted, he admits to burying the box, but he denied stealing the clothes, and he's arrested. So turning him over to the juvenile officer, Leo J. Kelly, the boy is returned home. Sir Kelly realizes that there have been a string of these laundry thefts of women's clothes, which is kind of unusual in this peaceful, middle-class town of 70,000 people. So Kelly also takes his job as a juvenile officer very seriously because he's been haunted by this case from four years ago. Back then, a 16-year-old boy was caught stealing pocket change, and he is sent to juvenile hall. So Kelly attempts to get him into the Big Brother program, but that doesn't work out. So on his release from juvie, the boy found out that his job at the pharmacy had been given to another kid. There, three days later, the boy hanged himself. Kelly regretted that he hadn't been able to do more to assist the kid who really needed help and understanding from all of these adults who wound up failing him. And Kelly knew from experience that it was better to confront this laundry thief directly. It might prove tough for the family. This is a Navy veteran dad who is now working at the Postal Service. It's a working mom. They have three boys, and one of whom is this sullen mute staring at the floor in his bedroom. Some prodding by Kelly, the emotionless teen confessed. He said he's been stealing women's clothes off clotheslines for over a year. And Kelly thought, geez, you know, most kids would be like crapping their pants. And he's just sitting there confessing. Then the teen got up and he gives Officer Kelly a box. And it contains a pair of medical scissors that he's gotten from his mom, who is an emergency room nurse, women's panties, bras, garter belts, nylons, all cut up. All right, flashing back four years, Kelly knew of this good Samaritan who had promised to pay for the first three psychiatric visits should Kelly come across another child at risk. All the warning signs are flashing big red mountains at this point. So he contacts her about paying the $270 for the boy to see a psychiatrist. Leo Kelly is deeply worried that something more serious could develop in the future if this kid didn't get immediate psychiatric intervention. Hopefully, these concerned, hardworking parents would recognize the value of the therapy and continue treatment for their son after the first three. Hopefully, they'd recognize how important this was for his future. And in case you wondered, $270 in 1954 is equal to about $2,700 in 2021. So that is one very kind Samaritan. Now we're going to move forward to July 1986 in Sacramento, the city of trees in California. 19-year-old Stephanie Brown, a bank teller at the Sacramento Saving and Loans, was feeling a bit sorry for herself given the recent breakup with her boyfriend Randy. 
Her roommate, Patty Burrier, was off with her guy, Jim Fraser. So Stephanie went to bed feeling a little off. A bit later, the phone rang, waking her up. It was Patty. Their car had broken down. Would she come get them? Well, yes, of course she would. Stephanie was a good friend, and she had had her share of breakdowns herself. Jim gave her the directions, throwing on shorts, a blue lacy tank top, sandals, long hair up in a ponytail, and grabbing her purse, Stephanie was out the door. Around 1 a.m., she found Patty and Jim in front of the Pine Cove Liquors, and apologetic, Jim gave her directions to his apartment. Once there, Stephanie was thanked and got directions home from Jim, who said, stressing, quote, be sure to go north, not south on I-5. It'll say Sacramento, unquote. North of Sacramento and home, south would lead to a lonely, desolate stretch of 40 miles, not fun at 1.30 a.m. What no one realized is that the brush had grown over the portion of the sign that read Sacramento. It was Patty Burrier who called Joe Allen Brown to tell her that her daughter hadn't shown up from work and was missing. Patty explained that when she got to their apartment and Stephanie wasn't there, she'd assumed that Stephanie had decided to crash at her sister's or maybe even Randy's. Joe Allen Brown was beside herself. There was no way that Stephanie would miss work without calling in. A knot in her stomach said it all that something was very, very wrong. Joe Allen knew the only reason Stephanie wasn't calling is because she couldn't. Notify the authorities. Immediately notify the authorities. Deputy Stanley Acevedo of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department spoke to Patty and Jim, who gave them a recent photo of Stephanie, white woman, 5'8", long blonde hair over brown, pierced ears, and Joe Allen added, peeling from a sunburn. Speaking to Joe Allen over the phone, Deputy Acevedo asked if she had fingerprints and dental records. The whole world fell away from Joe Allen. No, she didn't have fingerprints, but she could get dental records. To Acevedo, this didn't have the feel of a routine missing person case, and he notified Homicide immediately. And a bolo, be on the lookout for, Stephanie Brown and her car, a Dodge Colt, went out as well. 50-year-old Alan Dakin loved to bicycle to his favorite fishing hole, fed by California's great freshwater delta, and the 100-plus July temperature did not deter him one bit. He anticipated sitting by his mini-mobile home, cold tall one, after a fish fry. First, Alan needed to catch himself some crawdads for bait. Only, wait, what was that? Is that a mannequin? Oh, no. We know it's never a mannequin. It was a body he found floating face down. Pedaling faster than he had ever in his life, Alan notified the authorities of the San Joaquin County Sheriff Department. Pete Rosenquist, with 16 years on the force, seven in homicide, arrived with David Vito Bertaccini, a six-year mustached street cop turned detective, now investigating his second homicide. A purplish ring around the neck suggested that Jane Doe had been strangled. When a killer is unknown, most murder investigations begin with the victim. Henderson writes that, quote, attempting to solve a murder without knowing the identity of the victim was trying to survey a plot of land with a blank measuring tape, end quote. That is 
a perfect description. July 15, 1986. The missing person report on Stephanie Brown hit the desk of Sacramento County Sergeant Harry Macon of Homicide, who was up to his eyeballs in murders at that time. The distinguished 17-year veteran sat across from Lieutenant Ray Biondi, a no-nonsense manager who hated bureaucratic-driven police administration. He and Macon agreed that Stephanie's case smacked the stranger abduction. If this was a homicide, it needed to move quickly. Deputy Acevedo filled Macon and Biondi in by 2.30 that afternoon. News that the California Highway Patrol, CHIPS, had located Stephanie's Dodge Colt on a desolate ramp off I-5, known as Hood Franklin, came in. At 3.25, Macon received a call from the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department that they had a fresh female Jane Doe dead less than 12 hours. The descriptions of their Jade Doe and Stephanie seemed to match. To find out definitively, they would be matching her fingerprints to those of Stephanie Brown's driver's license. Going to examine the Dodge Colt, Macon noticed that the doors were unlocked and the driver's window was down, which is really unusual for someone driving on a highway. It was much more likely to happen when you stopped to speak with someone. By 4.47 p.m., a recent photo of Stephanie Brown was being dispatched, and the San Joaquin homicide noted that their Jane Doe was peeling from a sunburn. By 5 o'clock p.m., the cold hatchback was on its way to the crime lab to be processed. When Biondi said quick, he meant quick. Jane Doe now had a name, Stephanie Marcia Brown. At the post-mortem, Vito Bertaccini had to wrangle with the pathologist to get a rape kit done, with him resisting because the body had been submerged and, quote, anything would have been washed away, unquote. Winning the scuffle, the crime lab chemical test did indicate seminal fluid in the vaginal swab. All information about the autopsy was recorded in Rosenquist's, quote, murder book. I kind of like that, which included the physical description of the victim. Short blonde hair over brown. Brown eyes, one hole in each ear. The abnormality was that the strangulation bruising around her neck stopped along the right side. Rosenquist speculated that perhaps something had gotten caught between the ligature and the skin. We know she had been punched in the jaw and then held tightly, which left bruises along her chin and arms. Scratch marks had been caused by her being forced to lie down on the ground. Stephanie had been bound and made to kneel based on her wrist and knee abrasions. Her death hadn't been quick or painless. The official cause of death was asphyxiation with evidence of ligature strangulation. The working theory was Stephanie had missed the turn for I-5 North and had gotten on I-5 South, was abducted and murdered. Rosenquist and Bertaccini went to the irrigation ditch where Stephanie Brown's body had been found, to take in the environment as it had been the previous night. They wanted to go where she had gone on that final ride, see the terrain, the quality of light. What was striking was the isolation. The killer had to be familiar with I-5 and the area. No way did he want to be interrupted. The 20-minute ride from her car at Hood Franklin had to have been utterly terrifying. Had she been gagged or allowed to scream? The detectives determined that they were dealing with a very cool customer. 
he left little incriminating evidence, indicating enormous composure and experience. The detectives now had to go tell Joe Allen and Tom Brown of their daughter's death. Joe Allen was actually thankful that they knew what happened. The worst torture imaginable was the not knowing. Trying to be helpful, they would answer all of their questions. Did she drive with the window down? No, she kept it up. Was she trusting of people? Oh, yes. Mrs. Brown called her their love child, very trusting and giving. Glancing at the photos of a long-haired Stephanie, Rodicini asked, Hey, she cut her hair? Oh, no, she's worn it long since she was in grammar school. A red flag shot up. Asked what length Stephanie wore her hair, Mrs. Brown replied, mid-back. When she was told it was short when found, Mrs. Brown said, short? Well, then whoever killed her cut it. At the morgue, Vito confirmed Stephanie's hair was lopsided. Stephanie's hairstylist would confirm that her hair had been cleanly cut by scissors, and Rosenquist and Bertaccini now knew why the ligature mark around her neck discontinued. Her hair had been caught underneath it, and the killer had cut it off so he could take the ligature with him. How did the killer know he needed scissors? Answer, because he'd done it before. Back to the ditch, the detectives went fishing, but not for trout. Carefully scraping along the bottom, Vito snagged a blue lacy tank top with several strands of hair attached to it. It seemed that several places the shirt had been ripped or cut. The Dodge Colt had no fingerprints, nothing to connect it to a killer. But her armrest was on the floor. Why would the armrest be detached? Answer because Stephanie would not have gone meekly with an attacker. She'd have struggled, clinging to something to hang on to, like an armrest, which got dislodged in the assault. The commander of homicide unit for a decade, Ray Biondi, knew that she had been murdered by a serial killer, even though the evidence was lacking thus far. Ray just knew. This wasn't his first serial killer. Biondi had captured and convicted serial murderers Richard Chase, Gerard Gallego, Marty Trillo, and John Dunkel during his tenure. Male serial killers do not awaken out of the mist. They are a product of nurture and a particular developmental point in their lives, which takes root and grows over the years, simmering to a full boil. Most fantasize about killing long, long before they first act, usually in their late 20s or 30s. Keep in mind, this remains a very rare crime, and this killer was no newbie. Patient, impulsive, cautious, thorough, and hands-on. Hands-on. I know, I know, that's terrible. Strangler's hands-on. Hey, you, you got to make fun of them. you got to. All right, so law enforcement is being proactive. They issued a press bulletin requesting information from anyone driving I-5 that night that Stephanie was abducted. And they didn't stop there. Instead, to my joy, both sheriff departments, with the help of CHIPS, put a roadblock in place at Hood Franklin off-ramp from midnight until 2 p.m. on July 29, 1986. They stopped motorists, asked if they had driven two weeks earlier, the same time that Stephanie had. If so, 
they were questioned in much more detail. 296 vehicles were stopped with less than stellar results, but they get an A-plus for effort. August 4th, 1996. Vito headed back to the drainage ditch again, but this time with a magnet. And this time he found a pair of scissors, eight inches long overall, three-inch cutting blade, not a bit of rust on them. It turns out that this was a rare model of sewing shears, Italian-made, and very few had been sold in the United States. August 16, 1996. Charmaine Chabra was going out of town, a rare event for the mother of a three-month-old son. She and her mom, Carmen and Selmy, were seeing Charmaine's sister's fiancé, Carlos Gonzalez, and his band play. As Carmen had never learned how to drive, Charmaine drove, both getting all dolled up for the night. Charmaine was stunning, wearing a black and lavender shirt, skirt, and faux alligator heels. Spinning under the light, Carmen admired her lovely daughter, who looked radiant and happy, a long cry from the little girl who had had cardiac issues that resulted in open-heart surgery. At last call, Carmen was feeling a little woozy and couldn't believe it was already 2 a.m. that they had truly whirled the night away. Stopping to eat at an all-night diner, they set out for home around 3 a.m. Their Pontiac conked out about halfway home. The engine would turn over, but it wouldn't catch. Sounds like the starter went to me. I've had that happen. While there wasn't a gas station or a payphone in sight, and unhappily but resigned, the woman decided to wait for the highway patrol. Charmaine was concerned about leaving the baby because she was nursing him. About an hour later, a light appeared behind them. Finally, somebody had stopped to help. It was a dark sports car with a man inside, and he offered to drive one of them to the payphone. Carmen agreed, got into the car with him as Charmaine locked herself in the Pontiac. On the ride, the driver was quiet, and he listened to Carmen's tale of their evening. He was in his 40s or 50s, graying hair, wearing an old t-shirt. His voice was low, so Carmen had a kind of a tough time hearing him. When they got to the payphone, Carmen just couldn't reach anybody. Frustrated, she got back in the car, and they returned to Charmaine. At a loss, the man offered to drive them home, but he could only do one of them at a time. It's a two-seater. Carmen was impressed by his helpfulness, saying Charmaine should go first since she had to get home to the baby, and Carmen promised to lock herself in, don't worry about her, she'd be fine. She watched them drive away and settled in to wait. Four hours later, a male voice awakened Carmen. It was a highway patrolman, and he offered to take her to the payphone. And thinking that this kind Samaritan must have gotten tired and hadn't come back for her, Carmen accepted. She called and left a message for her son, who arrived at the payphone about 45 minutes later. And he asked, Mom, where's Charmaine? Carmen went icy cold. The investigation into the missing young mother kicked into high gear, given the high probability of foul play. Carmen berated herself for being duped by the nice man, only pulling herself together to care for her grandson. She prayed and prayed that Charmaine would be found. The new missing persons case was assigned to Vito Bertaccini given the similarities to the other one. Both young women 
disappearing on Interstate I-5, 15 minutes from each other, in the dead of night. Interviewing Carmen was not as fruitful as Vito had hoped. Since Carmen didn't drive, she was just oblivious about cars. Unhelpful, it worsened her guilt. She asked Bertaccini, why had he not taken her? She had been in his car. And Vito replied that, quote, we, we just couldn't know these things, end quote. But the truth was that the guy hadn't wanted mom. He'd wanted the younger, prettier one. Yet the killer had left behind an eyewitness, which is really risky behavior. Had he been seized by some uncontrollable feeding frenzy and was willing to take the chance? Or was he so confident, believing he was just unstoppable? Now, either choice is horrifying. Carmen did help develop a composite sketch for this helpful motorist who was wanted for questioning. Leads were called in, resulting with 19 names, but no actual suspects. About 30 miles southeast of Sacramento, Marty Martin, who was a 22-year-old lighthouse worker, was bird hunting with his faithful black lab amigo. They'd barely begun when his dog froze and then strangely bolted from the spot. Amigo, shouted Martin. This was so odd. Then his dog stopped, whined, growled. He was behaving really weird. Slowly approaching the thicket, Marty froze, horrified, seeing a foot sticking out from beyond the bush. Chips located the body halfway down the levee. She was white, nude from the waist up, hand bound behind her back with a ligature around her neck. Sackett County Sheriff Detective Stan Reed was assigned to this Django case. Reed had 300 plus investigations under his belt, and Lieutenant Biondi respected this detective's abilities. At her autopsy, it was quickly determined that she had died months earlier as her skin had mummified. With so much decomposition, no blood, semen, saliva would be recovered. The pathologist deduced she was 19 plus or minus a couple years old, about 5'4", and had been strangled to death with her tank top. A dentist would preserve a cast of her teeth, which hopefully would be useful in identifying her. To save her fingerprints, though, her fingertips were snipped off at the joints and casts made, which would produce readable prints. All were saved as evidence in this case. What the pathologist missed were the so many deliberate cut marks made in the tank top, which he preserved in the freezer. Vito Bertaccini turned to the FBI Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico to see if profilers might be helpful in the Brown case. They responded with the following. One. The victim pulled over or stopped without being fearful as her window was open and doors were unlocked. Two, it is likely the victim was lost or going the wrong direction when confronted by the assailant. Three, no indication of physical struggle by the victim could indicate her experiencing extreme fear or possibly physical restraint. Four, the victim died choking without evidence of attempting to remove the ligature which indicates she was restrained by some method that limited her ability to move her arms and hands. Five, the cutting of the victim's blouse and hair may be intimidation, control, or to degrade. Six, the killer was familiar with the dump site given its remoteness, 
and it also indicates he is without remorse. 7. The amount of sexual activity indicates one assailant. And 8. Choking may have been used to heighten sexual stimulation of the assailant, which could be related to the strangulation of the victim. Was this how it had gone down with Stephanie? All right. So the California DOJ Crime Lab services mostly small rural counties in Northern California that do not have the resources to have their own crime labs. So the DOJ forensic scientist's job varies from collecting and preserving evidence to interpreting physical evidence, such as bullet trajectories, blood spatter, drag marks. They conduct lab tests, prepare reports, testify as expert witnesses. DOJ criminalist Jim Streeter's area of expertise was in seriology, which is a diagnostic examination of blood serum, especially with regards to response of the immune system to pathogens and other substances. And Jim was also an expert at processing homicide crime scenes. He preferred to process crime scenes himself, knowing that photographs just really didn't give you the whole sense of the scene being there, that total immersion was better. And when he was asked to go to Almador County, where a human body has been found, Streeter readily agreed. On site at the heart of Gold Rush Country, Streeter approached the remains, noting animal activity had scattered the bones about, leaving a torso. Taking photos, he noted the black bra around her ribcage, panties about 10 feet away. Her dark skirt was open and pulled up. A private pathologist arrived who took charge of the body and concluded she was in her mid-twenties. The pathologist said he wanted the remains moved off the ground. Obliging, the on-site deputies moved them over to the sheriff's pickup truck. Streeter cringed inwardly as he would have preferred the body be bagged and not carried through the field. But the crime scene belonged to the locals, not the DOJ. Laid out on the tailgate, the, patholo- the pathologist, Doc, announced that he was doing a field autopsy, sliding on a pair of gloves. Okay, I admit, I stopped reading and I said to myself, he's going to do a what? Where? No, really, on the tailgate? But yes, yes, that is exactly what's happening. Henderson quotes Doc as saying, quote, No reason to go anywhere else when we can get what we need right here. I'm not charging for a regular autopsy, you know, saving the county a lot of money. End quote. Streeter was horrified. Evidently, Doc had decided that this was a nothing of a case and would go nowhere, certainly not to trial, so heck with protocol. Streeter muttered at this point, I don't think this is a good idea, while a deputy next to him shrugged. Doc began to pull the remains apart, shaking out the clothing briskly. Oh my God, bye-bye particles, fibers, hairs. Inside the skeleton, Doc found a polished fingernail, sticking it in an envelope. And then Doc announced, we've got strangulation. The videographer leaned inward. The black material noted earlier was wrapped around her neck, with blonde hairs entangled about the fabric. Around her wrists was more black material. Clearly, she had been tied. She'd been dead for about three months. The finale came when the doc picked up her skull and snapped off her jaws, 
handing them to the deeply shocked deputy, saying, The odontologist will want these, end quote. The evidence would have to be processed by the sheriff's office before heading over to the DOJ. I really wish that was a fantasy story, but it's not. Back at the DOJ, Jim Streeter, he spoke to a colleague, Paul Payne, a criminal identification specialist in the missing persons unit. Filling Paul in on all he knew about Jane Doe, Paul asked if she was wearing high heels, a purple skirt. Streeter answered, yeah, like what the... Paul replied, been keeping this one handy. I knew she'd be found somewhere. Heels were alligator, right? Skirt was lavender, not purple. By noon, the victim's jaws were literally delivered to Payne, who conferred with Dr. George Gould, who was totally taken aback when the jaws were handed for him to examine. He's normally dealing with x-rays, you see. And Gould confirmed that the teeth belonged to the missing person. Payne and the Amador detectives then brought the terrible news to Carmen that her daughter, Charmaine Shabra's body had been found. She just rocked her grandson in her arms, completely cried out. As the Amador County Sheriff's Department went with Ray Biondi, Stan Reed, Vito Bertaccini, Peter Rosenquist, Jim Streeter, on all the similarities of the murder cases, they watched the video shot by the Amador detectives showing the tailgate autopsy until Vito Bertaccini just couldn't stand it and cursed, shouting, I've gutted rabbits with more care. Seeing the pathologist shaking out the clothing, Reed sighed, Oh, so much for trace evidence. And Biondi cringed at the loss of any other microscopic evidence that just vanished into the dust. Well, whatever. They got down to business. Bertaccini asked if Charmaine's hair had been cut. Surprised, the detectives responded, Well, you know, we found blonde hair caught in ligature, but never heard anybody say it was cut. Biondi summarized the links in the case, the strangulation, the hands bound behind the back, the sexual assault, transportation of the victims someplace distant, and started to believe that they had a series. Bernicini agreed, while the rest remained noncommittal, especially to the suggestion of forming an interdepartmental task force to address this killer. The assembled did agree that copies of the reports would go to the DOJ, who would forward and share with everybody, and all evidence would go to Streeter for processing. Far from ideal cooperation, it is something. But Biondi knew that interagency battling, interdepartmental turf wars, bureaucratic red tape, petty bickering would only get worse geometrically as the series continued. Streeter received all the evidence in the Stephanie Brown case and started reviewing it. There was too little semen for a DNA test, but he'd do blood typing and evaluate hair fibers, concluded that her hair had been cut. Bertaccini was right. Streeter also noted the cutting on her shirt like it had been cut by scissors. He kept it in the bag to preserve any of the trace evidence. The bags of Charmaine Sabra's evidence arrived. Streeter examined the black and the lavender blouse that he'd seen at the crime scene. All the buttons down the front were intact, but both shoulder seams had been cut at the collarbone area, and the seams were also open with a strip cut from each side. Streeter realized that these strips were the ligatures that had been used to strangle her, reinforced with the length of yellow nylon cord. 
black pantyhose were used to bind her wrists, and the remainder were cut up. This guy's sure expending a lot of effort cutting stuff up. Charmaine's half-slip and panties had cuts in them, but her skirt did not. It was likely the pantyhose had bound the victims and they'd come off first. Then he's cut his way through the layers of her clothes to remove them, but also cut for less obvious reasons. Jim Streeter turned his attention to Jane Doe, examining her jeans, panties, and gray-striped socks. The only cuts that had been made here were done by the pathologist, so it didn't match the others. Streeter wasn't aware of her cut-up tank top in the freezer at the Sacramento Crime Lab. What should they tell the public? A huge bone of contention. Bertaccini and Biondi got into it heavy. Vito Bertaccini's point being, why should we share any information? We do not want copycats springing up, screwing up the investigation. Biondi, with years of experience working in homicide and serial cases, knew certain actions needed to be taken when dealing with unsolved cases. In fact, he had a list of actions. One, law enforcement's top priority should be to forewarn and protect the public. People need to safeguard themselves. Withholding information that prevents them from doing that is wrong. Two, when a suspect's identity is unknown, the only avenue is to put pressure on the killer, and that is via the media. Let the killer know that they are on to him, and it's not safe for him to operate anymore. Three, identifying an unknown killer is often accomplished by a public plea for assistance, as well as providing the public with information that may turn out to be recognition keys for someone to know something about the killer. Having millions of informed people looking around is better than only a handful of people. Biondi explained his rationale to Bertaccini. They would withhold information that only they and the killer knew. This was a smart and valued strategy. However, in the last three or four months, the case had gone from lukewarm to ice cold. Giving up cutting might shake someone out there who knew something, who might make a call and tell them something new that they didn't know. It was a calculated risk, but worth taking. By the end of the heated discussion, they agreed to give up cutting to the media, but holding back on telling them they'd found the scissors. It was a reasonable compromise, and a new term came into being, non-functional cutting which wasn't necessary to undress the victims. Behavior that is not required to conduct the crime is known as a ritual. It is therefore done out of the killer's psychological needs. It's not necessary to commit the crime. In the end, the press conference went well. Biondi straddled that danger zone of informing the public while not terrifying them adequately. He explained the commonalities that linked Stephanie Brown, Charmaine Sabraw, and Jane Doe cases, time factors, geography, the I-5 highway, cause of death, and the ritual cutting of clothing of the women, stressing that this was a highly deviant and unique behavior. Law enforcement believed it was a single murderer who frequently traveled through the three counties, and this was the work of a serial killer. 
It was reassuring that a new army of citizens would be on the lookout for a serial killer and educated about the tactics that he used to find victims. Yet, Biondi also had some reservations. The media would certainly jumpstart a cooling investigation. But how could a handful of overworked homicide detectives handle hundreds of tips, weed through them, and find those that could crack the case, that needle in the proverbial haystack? And there was no answer to this predicament. Two days later, Ray Biondi got a call from the Placer County detectives who had been at the DOJ briefing. They had arrested a suspect in killing of two women, David Rundle, who had confessed. Was he good for the Brown, Sabra, and Doe cases, too? Rundle was now in a jail in Auburn, California, 35 miles east of Sacramento. Biondi assigned Reed and Bell to interview Rundle and hoped that maybe this was the end of the I-5 killings. They interviewed Rundle, who denied killing anyone else, sticking to his story. Biondi began with the, We know what you've done, Rundle. Tell us about the others. What happened here in Placer was the end. When did it start? Rundle remained blank, speaking softly. So softly the men had to lean in to hear him. I don't know. I don't know about any others. Bell shrugged. It really won't do you any good to hold out on this. Why don't you just get it off your chest? Anderson writes that Rundle's baby blues darted from side to side as he was looking for a way out. Finally, with a great sigh, he drops his head to his arms on the table. All right, his voice cracked. Was Rundle going to cry? Biondi wondered. I, I did another one, my first, in May. That was two months before Stephanie Brown. Biondi nodded as if he had known all along. Who? he asked. Filipino, I think. Met her down by the river, said Rundle. Filipino? thought Biondi. He asked, okay, well, where'd you dump her? Right off I-5, came the answer. Along the banks of the Sacramento River, near the Pioneer Bridge. As it turned out, a 21-year-old Filipino woman had indeed been found straddled at that location near I-5 six months earlier in Sacramento. But Biondi was livid. That detective and deputy chief sat at the DOJ meeting not 48 hours earlier and had not uttered one word about a similar case that this Sacramento PD should have presented. They'd selfishly come out to find out what everyone else knew while sitting on their own information. Another disheartening example of law enforcement failing to communicate. Biondi blamed the higher-ups, the political hacks, or the incompetent morons. Take your pick. Outcome. Bad guys benefit. Murder bookies? Insert Jill's usual expansive rant on this subject. Now, close rant. Moving on. David Rundle, turns out, had not killed Stephanie Brown, Charmaine Sabraw, or Jane Doe. But he did cop to murdering a Filipino woman in exchange for life imprisonment without parole to avoid the death penalty. All right, so a composite sketch on the I-5 series suspect made the media circuit. Three days later, a San Joaquin County Sheriff's squad car had to break sharply when a total idiot in a dark sports car turned left against a red. Deputy Amato Mayoya 
flipped on his lights and squealed after him like right out of the movies. Car chase and the dark car, a Datsun 280Z, didn't go far and pulled over. Moyoya checked out the driver, who was alone in his two-seater, California plate, Mary Boy Victor 466. Hmm. It sounded familiar. He checked the note he'd taken, and it matched a plate given to him by a sex worker from Stockton who worked in an area called The Stroll. Janet Nelson is about 30 and older, more experienced than a lot of the women working the sex trade. Janet had become something of a mentor to them. And the story she told Mayoya was secondhand, but it was important. Janet felt it could save a life. She was sitting with another call girl called Sherry Zeller, and Sherry saw the dark 280Z cruise by slowly and pointed it out to Janet. That John had offered her $1,000 and some new clothes if she would take a ride with him to Lake Tahoe. Sherry flatly refused. The trip was just way too far. And, quote, the guy looked like that picture of the killer in the paper. Hmm. Nelson went on to tell Mayoya that the dark 280Z had pulled over for her, too, but she only got close enough to get the license plate. She didn't actually see who was driving. Deputy Moyoya held his hand on his service revolver and a long black flashlight on the other. Was this guy Joe Citizen, who just happened to solicit a sex worker now and again, or was he a serial killer he was approaching? Moyoya intended to write him a ticket, but he'd also wait and see what happened next. The driver handed him his driver's license without a problem. Roger Reese Kibbe. After a moment of pure heart failure, Moyoya and Kibbe had a discussion about Kibbe's public gun in the car. Moyoya requested the technical service deputy respond to photograph the vehicle. Why, you might ask? Because Kibbe did look so much like the composite of the serial killer. 5'10", graying hair, 180 pounds, large nose, and his car matched too. So recall, it was a two-seater sports car that separated Carmen and Sony and Charmaine that fateful night. And Drat, Roger Kibbe's driver's license was suspended too for failure to appear on, believe it or not, a broken tail lamp complaint. So anyway, Mayoya confiscates Kibbe's driver's license and orders him off the road while he has to deal with this. By early December 1986, Jane Doe now has a name. She was Laura Hedick, 20-year-old petite blue-eyed blonde who'd been reported missing in April from Modesto, California, which is about an hour's drive from Sacramento. She wasn't identified earlier because the Stanislaus County Sheriff's Department hadn't gotten around to it. And why? Because Laura Hedick was a sex worker and they just didn't care about her. These victims didn't matter, and you know this drives me crazy. Her boyfriend, James Driggers, was 32, and he explained that Laura got into a car with a stranger and vanished. Once the DOJ's missing person unit bothered to get Laura's dental records, months and months later, Laura's identity was quickly matched to her remains. She had not run off to find a better life. She had been murdered. Stan Reed held no such prejudice going to work on the Hedick case full steam ahead. Murder was murder in his book, and she might be a victim of an active serial killer. I like Stan Reed. 
interviewed boyfriend James Driggers. He said that he and Laura had an open relationship, so he wasn't the jealous type. They needed some money, so Laura had gone out to find a John, and she got into the white car with the gray man in his 40s or 50s. The guy said he could get some drugs, and Morris told Driggers to wait for them to return. She never returned. James hadn't called the police himself because he was afraid there was a warrant out for him, so he had his mother report her missing. The Driggers' December statement did match his account from April. Now, this does not make him an angel. James Driggers has a substantial arrest record in Florida. He served time for burglary and escaped from jail, but that doesn't make him a murderer either. It does make him a habitual criminal who is more than willing to have his girlfriend hook drugs for him. Yet, with the evidence of binding, strangulation, transportation of the criminal, it does look more like a serial case than a boyfriend killed his girlfriend situation. Reed explained that Jim Driggers was really all wrong. Hedick was tied up, Driggers wouldn't have had to control her like that, and the groat was not appropriate for the heat of passion kind of kill. So while figuring out if Driggers fit into the serial case, an appeal for help from the public had produced well over 300 leads in the Sac County Sheriff Department alone. The other departments had their leads as well, most dealing with suspects. And with the yellow pad, Reed, Biondi, Bob Bell, they sat down to develop a point system to prioritize leads and make sense of all this chaos. They came up with 20 points if the suspected person's identity is known or he could be traced. 10 points if he had access to a dark two-seater sports car. 10 points if he had a haircutting fetish or owned Italian scissors. Eight points if he's between 40 and 60 years old, gray straight hair, and a large nose. Eight points if he could be placed on the I-5 area. Six points if he had a violent background or similar crimes had been committed. Six points if he was familiar with the area the crimes took place. Six points if he ever attempted to pick up females on highways or freeways. Six points if there was recent behavioral changes that coincided with the murders, the dates, press releases, or the summer of 1986. And they would add up the points for the people who came in. Priority one, these are the most viable leads, 40 points or more. Priority two, 35 to 40, they would be worked on in absence of any other priority ones. Priority three, 20 to 35 points. These are informational leads, but they lack significant details to follow up on. And priority four are informational only. Now, the DOJ's Homicide Analysis Unit agreed to create a program to tabulate the numbers, print the names of suspects according to the total point value, and would update lists with new information. So this would organize the many hundreds of leads that had already been accumulated from which working detective assignments could be created. And it would be great if they weren't facing a manpower shortage. They really needed new detectives. So now Biondi requests four more, two to be tasked on the serial killer case. He cites statistics, workload, data comparisons with other counties, rationales galore, and Biondi is greeted with a big, nice try response from the administration. And he wondered, why did I want to work in homicide again? 
Oh, yeah, it must be because I love headaches and the ungodly workload that came with it. Oh, gosh, okay. But there's a knock on Ray Biondi's door, and a woman named Kay Malsby came in. Kay was 42, and a detective held in high regard by this lieutenant. Always interested in police work, Malsby was a social worker when the Sac Sheriff Department hired deputy females. Moving on to patrol three years later, she excelled, performing as well as her male colleagues, eventually becoming a detective, then sergeant, then sergeant detective in special investigations. But her chance of making to homicide were low, not due to sexism, but due to her being a sergeant detective. The Homicide Bureau had one lieutenant position, one sergeant detective, and three detective spots. That's it. So she might actually retire before the sergeant detective slot opened up. Not deterred, Kate gave up her stripes, voluntarily taking the demotion, cut $300 in pay, which today is more like $750. And Biondi was really surprised by her choice because he sure wouldn't have done it. And he was impressed by her determination to get into homicide. And when she popped in his doorway, he said as much, but his request for manpower had been rejected. But Kay, keep checking. On December 15, 1986, Detectives Bertaccini and Reed followed up on Deputy Mayoya's traffic stop and knocked on the door of Harriet and Roger Kibbe. Earlier, they left a calling card with a note that said, please call. And when Harriet finally did, she was shocked when Homicide answered. Homicide? What was that about? Now, she had been told that it was about an ongoing investigation. Shaken, Harriet prayed, oh God, not again. Eight years earlier, Roger had been questioned in a missing person case, a young woman from Walnut Creek near San Francisco. An eyewitness had seen her getting into a van that looked like Roger's. Since Roger had only been out of prison a few years, the police had seized on him as a suspect. Roger assured Harriet he knew nothing about any missing women, and now Harriet and Roger had to go meet with Bertaccini and Reed. They took Roger to the police station and told Harriet that she could meet them there. This gave Harriet time to think about her crumbling 11-year marriage on the drive over. Roger was a decent husband, Harriet's fourth. He didn't drink, he had a kind side to him around children, loved animals, always had a job, handed over his paycheck to her. While Harriet needed to be dominant to control the situation, Roger was submissive. Roger let Harriet run their lives, pay the bills, handle problems, find solutions, protect him. She was his wife, but she also mothered him. However, Anytime anything went wrong, like when their furniture business failed in June 1986, Harriet was emotionally abandoned by Roger and had to deal with it all on her own. Now their marriage was coming apart at the seams. She was really worried that Roger might leave her as he withdrew into himself. Bruce Henderson writes that recently, Harriet had adopted the quote, If I'm going to be miserable because he won't talk to me, then by God, I'm going to see that he's miserable too. End quote mantra. Yet her worst fear was being abandoned, so Harriet would not leave Roger. She just couldn't. At the Homicide Bureau, Roger Kibbe sat in an interrogation room with Vito Bertaccini. 
Vito got the lowdown on Roger's previous residences, jobs, vehicles he drove. He asked Kibby if he was soliciting prostitutes when he was stopped by Deputy Mayoya. Kibby admitted he was, and he had done so before in this area, stuttering slightly. He admitted he traveled to I-5 when he visited his brother in Tahoe. Vito realized this route would take him where Charmaine Sabraw had broken down the last night of her life. How did Roger access I-5? Roger readily told him. That route would take Roger within a mile of where Laura Hedrick's body had been dumped, and right near the drainage ditch where Stephanie Brown's body had been found floating. The detective asked Kibby if he was familiar with the area in Amador country where Charmaine Sabraw's body was found. Yeah, I know it, replied Kibby. While Kibby denied ever picking up hitchhikers or stopping to help stranded motorists, he did allow Bertaccini to take his photograph and fingerprints. But now, Kibby wanted to see Harriet. He told his wife he wasn't going home, hanging his head, staring at the floor. While the technicians worked with her husband, Harriet remembered how cocky Roger had been back in 1978 when he was interviewed by the police about the missing woman. Calmly, he confidently told her, we have nothing to worry about, smirking at the police. Why was he behaving so differently this time? Harriet knew that Roger had been in prison when she married him. He had committed burglary, grand theft, doing things like stealing wood from a lumberyard. Sometimes he stole to get even with someone, but often enough it wasn't even that. Roger just wanted to outfox the police and get away with it. As far as Harriet knew, he'd never hurt another person. He wasn't a violent man. At the end of the interview, Vito asked Roger to take a polygraph, and he said he'd discuss it with his brother, the cop, and get back to him. Afterward, Reed and Bayandi, who had been watching the interview on closed-circuit TV, were noncommittal. Bertaccini admitted that while he wasn't the most experienced homicide investigator, this guy gave him the chills. Bertaccini said, quote, he talks about women like they're playthings, and he's on I-5 a lot, and he's familiar with all the locations of our women, and he's got the cars too, end quote. Kibby had owned a Dodson 280Z two-seater in June 1986 when Charmaine Sabah disappeared. Prior to that, Kibby drove a white two-door 1972 Ford Maverick, which he sold July 3rd, two months after Laura Hedick disappeared. Boyfriend James Digger claimed Hedick had gotten into a white two-door car, never to be seen alive again. Bertaccini also reported that the Kibbe's furniture shop in the truck stop town of Ceres was about 10 minutes from Modesto, where the Kibbe's lived in a rented townhouse, the same town where Laura Hedick was from. Interesting, but all circumstantial. Two weeks earlier, Bertaccini was called to the scene of the traffic stop, where another composite look-alike was being held. John Samples did look like the man Carmen Anselmi described. He was the right age, height, weight, and he did drive a dark red sports car, an MGB, and he had a loaded flare gun in the car. Sample admitted to taking joyrides on I-5. Being an unemployed mechanic was another red flag but he denied ever stopping to help anyone who was stranded. Bertaccini felt really good about this guy, too, but later Sample's alibi was affirmed, and he was not the killer. They had other Priority 1 leads to investigate, 
and had a number of promising possible suspects. Some drove dark sports cars, other had violent sexual assault records, some had histories of choking victims during rapes, others dumped victims along highways, but ultimately they were all cleared of the I-5 murders. So, back to Kibbe. What were the chances that a Douglas County Sheriff Department detective, Steve Kibbe's brother, was a serial killer? A brother who gave Roger a lot of advice, apparently. The morning after the Homicide Bureau interviewed Roger, Harriet Kibbe went to take a shower. And when she came back, Roger had disappeared with much of his clothing. Kicking herself, she realized that Roger was in his withdrawal and run mode. Furious, Harriet replayed the discussion after the police station in her mind. Roger had been shaken, insisting the police would rig a polygraph against him. Harriet supported her maligned husband, never wavering in her belief that he was innocent. If you don't want to take it, don't. We'll see a lawyer, she vowed. And with that, they'd left the station. Later at home, they would go to bed separately the way they had for the previous eight months. Prior, they'd always shared a bed and enjoyed a successful sex life, the only place Roger took a dominant role to Harriet's delight. Eight months back, Roger impulsively decided he wanted to sleep with the cats, who Harriet was allergic to, and feeling he'd chosen them over her in a snit, Harriet had moved to the spare bedroom, and their sex life evaporated. She missed it and didn't understand how Roger didn't. When had things begun to unfurl? Her husband was a man with specific hobbies, a garage workshop, skydiving. So wanting to find something they could do together, Harriet took skydiving lessons and did make a tandem jump from 7,500 feet. Scared to death, Harriet vowed she would never do it again, and she admitted that the loss of their business had taken a toll on the couple. But sexual assault? Murder? No. Roger was a gentle, sensitive husband. Three slaps in 11 years did not make him a homicidal maniac. She couldn't point to a trigger of any sort, no arguments or unpleasant exchanges. Roger would just slink away when stressed. When he got antsy these days, he'd drive. In July alone, he'd wrapped up 10,000 miles on the Datsun 280Z, on a car that was supposed to be hers. She wound up getting herself a white Hyundai. Roger gave the white Maverick to a former employee he'd owed $140 in back wages to, totally infuriating Harriet. She called Bertaccini to tell him that Roger was declining the polygraph. While Harriet felt sorry for the victims, her husband had nothing to do with any of this. As Harriet contemplated life without Roger, he actually called asking how she was. Ticked off, she point-blankly asked him if he knew anything about these murdered women, and Roger told her no. Two days later, Roger's sister-in-law, Julie, called. Julie explained that Roger wanted to come home, but he was afraid because he had crabs. Harriet gasped. An STD? Roger had fled to Las Vegas and called Steve. He was fearful he was being framed for murder. Steve had convinced Roger not to flee, and now Steve's wife, Julie, was convincing Harriet to take Roger back. Harriet was actually relieved Roger wanted to come back. She had missed him and she felt sorry for him. And soon, a naked Roger stood in their bathtub, 
as Harriet used special shampoo to defeat the crabs. Harriet again felt needed. Vito began to think about Harriet's comment about eight years ago, that Roger had been looked into for a missing woman case. Vito contacted the Contra Costa Sheriff Department to see what they had on Kibbe. Dated April 1984, a rape-by-force report was made by Janice Evans, age 27, who identified her attacker as Roger Kibbe. She gave his license plate number with one letter off of his white maverick. A sex worker, Janice had been paid $30 to have intercourse. A few days later, Kibbe contacted her again, offering her $200 a day for sex. As she had $150 a day heroin habit, she agreed. Driving to a secluded area at night, he pulled a gun, violating the terrified Janet with the gun, and made her perform oral sex on him. Leaving her stranded, Janice had walked into town, was taken to the hospital. Examined, nothing was found that conclusively proves that she had been raped. Kibby's report went on to summarize his interview. Having Mirandized him, he said she was a sex worker. She hung out in front of his place of work. He'd given her a few dollars, but had never had sex with her because he had no idea what diseases she might have. Kibby gave her a ride to a fast food place where she was meeting a friend, and that was all. The sergeant interviewed Janice's friend, who confirmed that Janice told her the same story of the rape and seemed very frightened. When he went to re-interview Janice Evans, she had disappeared. There was a note in the file, Review if victim reestablishes contact. Bertaccini felt vindicated that Roger Kelly was potentially a dangerous man. Yet this report was from 1984. Where was the report from 1978 when a young woman disappeared, the one Harriet had mentioned? Sharing this information with Reed, he updated Roger Kibbe's tip sheet, adding Kibbe's history of being a suspect in abductions and rapes, and the tip sheet was sent to the DOJ to be shared. Detective Reed showed James Driggers the photo lineup with Kibbe in it to see if he could identify the guy Laura wrote off with, but unfortunately he could not. Carmen and Selmy hadn't been able to identify Kibbe either. However, James Drippers was able to identify a Ford Maverick as the car he had seen Laura Hedrick get into the night she had disappeared. Next came tracking down Kibby's white Maverick. They found it in possession of someone in Arroyo Grande, 200 miles south of San Francisco, who gave them permission to search the car. DOJ criminals went over the car with tape lifts, vacuuming up debris, and nothing connecting Laura Hedrick was found. A huge disappointment. They began to look at James Driggers once again, once he had failed a lie detector test. Being given his Miranda rights, James Driggers vehemently denied he'd killed his girlfriend. Fighting back tears, he explained that he felt partially responsible for Laura's death, as he'd taken her to the stroll to make money for drugs. It's likely the lie detector picked up on James' conflicted emotions when he answered the question about causing her death. They went over his story the night Laura disappeared again. New information came out that James had made a few collect calls to his mother, hoping Laura had shown up there. Had he now? 
telephone bills confirmed that he had made calls to his mother. Was he really hoping to find Laura or establishing an alibi? Regardless of his suspicions, Reed asked him to work with a police sketch artist to develop a composite of the man Laura drove off with that night. By January 1987, a new criminal bulletin was sent out with the suspect's sketch that looked a lot like Roger Kibbe, who had a priority point value of 52, putting him in first place. He was followed by Wayne Wellborn with a 48, a Sacramento cabbie, who bragged to his psychologist about raping women and reveling at being questioned in connection with the I-5 homicides. A number of other undesirables followed, two ex-cons who scored 44 points, another two guys who racked up 42 points. One was suspected five years earlier in a series of three female homicides unrelated to this series. The problem remained a lack of manpower. The I-5 series was pushed to the back burner as the Unabomber case drew in the detective's precious time. That's the one with Ted Kaczynski mailing bombs around the country. The poisoning of a local beauty queen, a clerk and a patron killed during the robbery, and the body of a man found shot along the side of the road. They all demanded attention. With the newly elected Sacramento County Sheriff, Glenn Craig, and a new commander of the detectives division, Frank Wallace, Biondi again lobbied for more detectives. And he got a lot more paperwork and a boss who didn't necessarily think that the cases were connected. Karen Finch, 25 years old, was a California girl, toned, golden, the mother of Nicole, excited about the new job she was beginning just as her marriage was ending. On June 14, 1987, Karen picked up Nicole at ex-husband Steve Higgins' place, about 20 miles from Yosemite National Park in Twain Hart. Spending a lovely afternoon sunbathing with her daughter, she returned to Steve's later that afternoon, dropping off Nicole and said their goodbyes. Karen's boyfriend, Larry Blackmore, got to his place about 10.30 p.m. and was surprised that Karen wasn't there as they planned that she would stay over. He tried her apartment. No answer. He tried his mother. Yes, Karen and Nicole had stopped by, but that was at 4.30. And yes, Karen had confirmed she was coming over that night. Larry tried Karen's number again, no answer, and he eventually fell asleep. In the morning, he called the dentist office where Karen worked and was told that she hadn't shown up. At 9.45 a.m., Larry called the Tuolumne County Sheriff's Office and filed a missing persons report. Larry's sister, Marcia, called him around 1.30 p.m. She had driven their mom to the airport, and she could swear she saw Karen's car parked on a country road nearby. She even jotted down the license plate number, repeating it to him. Larry figured it was a long shot, because what were the odds that Marcia, who'd seen Karen's car once a few weeks ago, would recognize it now? That evening, Larry spoke to Karen's terribly concerned parents, Glenn and Naomi Finch. Did they know Karen's license plate number by any chance? Glenn actually did, and he read it off to Larry and it was one number off from the numbers Marcia had given him. I'm going out there myself. I will call you later. And Larry headed out the door. Arriving at the intersection of French Camp and Rapon Roads, Larry's heart sank. It was Karen's car. 
He tried the doors, locked. He peered inside, nothing out of the ordinary. He checked the tires, he looked for body damage, nothing indicating an accident. It was a plausible route for Karen to have taken home. But if Karen had car trouble and left the car, she'd have called somebody within the last 24 hours, and she had not. He felt sick. A week later, the Gutierrez family was out enjoying the sunlight. Alex Gutierrez, a deputy for the Amador County Sheriff's Department, had promised his son that they would hike along Deer Creek before heading home. Moving towards the creek, collecting rocks to skim, Alex saw something in the road, like a big stain with a piece of clothing alongside. Was that blood? Glancing to the side of the road and down the ditch, he saw a woman on her back, obviously dead. Screeching halt, he ordered everyone back to the car, back, 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 back. And he drove to the first phone he could find and called for assistance. Detectives Bell, Reed, and Biondi soon arrived. The area was strewn with the victim's clothes and blood. A white female, blonde hair, was at the bottom of the ditch, her blouse wide open. She was nude from the waist down, wearing a pink tank top cut up the center. There was no purse or identification, just like the other three victims. Was this number four? It appeared she'd had her throat cut. Was it with scissors? Biondi speculated, quote, He gets mad at this one. Maybe she was able to put up a good fight, and he used what he had in his hand to overcome her resistance. End quote. Serial killers generally stuck with what worked before, but sometimes the manner of death could be dictated by circumstances, like screaming and fighting victims. In collecting the victim's clothing, it was noticed that the panties and shorts contained fecal matter, indicating a violent death that triggered an involuntary bowel movement. A three, four-inch piece of duct tape was stuck to the back of the victim's head. To remove it as evidence, they had to cut her long hair. Was this what happened to Stephanie Brown? Was he in a hurry this time, and he hadn't gotten all the duct tape? Had the killer screwed up? The next morning, Stan Reed read about Karen Finch, now eight days missing. He immediately called San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department, saying he had a Jane Doe that might be their missing woman. Reed ordered a copy of Finch's driver's license and thumbprint and set about acquiring her dental records. He then called the Finches, asking Naomi to describe Karen's jewelry, and what she described was identical to what Jane Doe was wearing. Stan promised he'd get back to her when he knew anything for certain. Meanwhile, partner Bob Bell was at the morgue, making sure that the rape kit was done prior to autopsy. She had died from neck wounds made by knife or scissors. When the thumbprint matched the driver's license, Glenn and Naomi Finch learned that their daughter Karen was a homicide victim. Detective Harry Macon took notes about Karen getting her life back together after divorce, how she loved her job, loved her daughter, and her life had been going so well. Boyfriend Larry Blackmore had an airtight alibi for the night Karen went missing, having worked a 16-hour shift at a correctional facility. Larry described the skid marks he'd seen, showing how the car had stopped quickly on the side of the road. Plus, there were marks in front of Karen's car, too, 
like someone had parked there and spun out in the gravel trying to get back onto the road. He noticed there were several large footprints in the dirt along the driver's door that looked like sneakers. Larry would draw a diagram for Stanley before leaving, broken-hearted. The detective went on to interview anyone who might have seen Karen Finch in the 24 hours before her murder. Steve Higgins, the ex-husband, had a strong alibi and was clear. Aaron was sighted at a liquor store with Nicole, visiting with Larry Blackmore at the house he rented, jogging, buying ice cream cones, dropping Nicole off at her dad's. An hour or so later, she had pulled over, gotten out of her car, probably barefooted, and carrying her pocketbook, locked the car door, which had gas and was operable, and had been killed. The search for viable suspects was on. A registered sex offender, Rick Gerson, came to light, and he was in an area and not properly registered. A decade earlier, Gerson had knifed a young woman to death and served time when convicted of her murder. He entered a retail business, found a 16-year-old sales girl, brutally raped her, and slit her throat, then put up a closed sign, went home, took a shower, returned where he ransacked the place. It's only when someone saw him leave then that Gerson was caught with stolen items in his backpack. Convicted, Rick Gerson served seven years and was paroled in 1985. He lived two doors down from where Karen Finch had lived first after separating from Steve. Reed interviewed Gerson. Where was he on June 14, 1987? Well, June 13th was his birthday. He dropped his fiancée off at work at 2.30 and her up at 10 p.m. In between, he was home alone with no alibi for the hours that Karen had been killed. Until recently, Gerson had worked for a courier service, driving regular routes all over California. Was he in Modesto on April 20, 1986? No, he was in Fresno. July 15, 1986, were you driving the I-5 south out of San Francisco late night? Uh, no, driving the Fresno route or home in Sonora. What about August 17, 1986? Uh, I didn't work on Sundays. Had no idea where he was a year ago. Gerson looked nothing like the composite sketch done by Carmen or James Driggins, and no evidence came to light that could connect Rick Gerson to Karen Finch's murder or any of the I-5 series. As of June 1989, 500 suspect leads had been received by the media on the I-5 series. Lieutenant Ray Biondi counted 20 individuals as priority one who should be investigated. He remained understaffed, with a new homicide occurring every week. He had visions of his weekly staffing request memos being folded into airplanes and sailed across the room. When he got approval for four new detectives, Ray Biondi kind of went numb. It turned out Captain Frank Wallace had actually come through. Ray Biondi made the call. Quote, hey, I was just wondering if you're still interested in coming to homicide. Heavens, yes, said Kay Mosby. A year later, the I-5 task force was finally put into place, and a hunt for an elusive serial killer was born. And that concludes Trace Evidence by Bruce Henderson, Part 1, The Elusive Serial Killer. And it gets so much better. Oh, make sure you read the book. You will not be sorry, murder bookies. I had to cut out so much. 
Do not miss the next episode where we take Biondi, Fettuccini, Reed, Bell, Malsby deeper into the investigation to expose this elusive killer. And we will go to meet the true hero of the story who manages to find trace evidence, hence the title of the book. Do not think this is an easy task. There are hurdles, there are setbacks, and the frustration is very real. And now, my choice for our next book is The Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of an Abusive Husband by Gary Sosnecki. He is the great-grandson of the victim, Cecilia Ludwig, who was horrifically murdered back in 1906 when wife-killing was an all-too-commonly-used term. His research into this case is exhaustive, and you will be engaged in his search for the truth. And you will enjoy hearing from him, Gary Sisnicki himself. I hope you'll be reading along with me. And if not, I'm happy to tell you the story and offer some analysis along the way. Thank you for listening. Please leave the coveted five-star review. It really helps me to grow the podcast. And reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email, jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Follow, subscribe, listen to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. Let the episode pop into your feed. Until next time, murder bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink information for the Trace Evidence Trilogy is found on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Par Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbeck.